there aren't any pressing announcements, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Oh, also, I forgot to mention before we continue into the sermon, uh, yes, the evangelism team went out and uh, they had a great, great day. Um, Anthony, we just want to tell us a few words how it went yesterday. Puerto Rican Day Parade yesterday. So thank you for mentioning that uh, this coming Saturday, the Austin Village Fair. And what time, Anthony? Uh, 11 to 1. 11 to 1, the Saturday, Austin Village Fair. If you want to join the gang out there um, evangelizing, what an opportunity to do so. All right, let's uh, get to the Bible in our Sunday morning series on what Christ thinks of the church. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through 6. Our focus today is on the Church of Sardis, the Church of Sardis, and uh, we'll entitle this the Nominal Church, the Nominal Church. In the angel of the church in Sardis, write this, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we bless you and praise you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your your word, the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Writ which instructs us, which teaches us. It is food for our soul. And now, O Lord, as we come to the, to the, to the table, O Lord, your table to feast from your word, to eat and to hear from you, O Lord, feed us. Uh, feed us, Father God, and, and may we hear from you and may it be satisfying to our souls. And, and may the word uh, not only uh, fill us, but that it may it bring nutrition and and may it bear fruit, Father God. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Uh, speak to us, and may our minds and hearts perceive thy will. And may we be sensitive, particularly to this message. And as it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let us hear today, O Lord. Father God, anoint my mind and my lips and my heart, and that as a preacher of the word, as a speaker of the word, it wouldn't just be merely routine, but that you're your, your spirit would empower me and enable me to speak forth thy truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have covered a number of churches so far, four to be exact, and today we're on this fifth church, the church of Sardis. 
And up to this point, we've looked at four different churches. And these churches um, were real churches. They existed in the first century. And they were real letters written directly to these churches, um, directly from Christ, through the medium of John the Apostle. And, um, but the message to these churches are the message for the churches all throughout the church age. And uh, although we may not be exactly like any one of these churches, there are implications that if we pay attention to and listen, apply to every church throughout the church age. And some more particularly may resemble a church in this list more so than others. Now today we look at the church of Sardis, and the church of Sardis we are told, has the reputation for being alive, but it is in fact dead. It's a dead church. And that raises the question of what exactly the Lord is addressing. And I think that makes us consider or ponder at the very least what we look at or think is a successful or lively church. Because Ultimately, our measure of success and our measure of vitality is quite different than the Lord's. Notice the church had the reputation for being alive. Now think about that because there are many churches that in fact today, if you were to think about it, have the reputation of being alive. They have a reputation of vitality. For example, if you were to go this morning down through Houston and Lakewood Baptist Church, you would very much think the church has a reputation for being alive. There's probably police directing traffic to a church that will fill about 20,000 people this morning to hear Joel Austin. If you were to go to Atlanta, Georgia, to the church where Creflo Dollar ministers, and you would see the same event. And you would say, my goodness, this church, something must be going on there. There's life there. There's vitality. You can go right down to 14th Street in Manhattan. There's a church there called Hillsong. And it very much has the reputation for being lively. We just saw the scandal of their former pastor. I won't mention his name, but he's known as the pastor to the celebrities rolling with the Kardashians and rolling with uh, the Biebers and <laughs> all the other well-named gnomes and the Chris Pratts and they have a satellite church in LA and it's where all the cool people go and they have a cool worship service and it's packed to the brim. And so you drive by and say, it has the reputation of being alive. And those are the glaring obvious examples, aren't they? But across America, there are a lot of churches that look like that. Right, whether it's the First Baptist Church in Orlando, which I've attended many times for the Ligonier Conference, you walk in that, it's not, it's not a church, it's a campus. It's a campus. It, it's, it's, it's not a sanctuary, it's a stadium. Right? They have a Starbucks in the lobby. Right? We, well, it's got to be alive. Right? It's got a lot of money, they have a building, they have a have a choir that, that could be on stage of Broadway? 
We don't have churches like that around here, but we do have churches that have reputations for being alive. The bigger churches around here, they're, they're packed on Sunday morning. It's the churches that have the reputation as the church and the place to be in Westchester County. The real issue is what is our evaluation and what is God's evaluation? That's the question. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what Christ thinks. And in the case of the church of Sardis, although they had a stunning reputation, the Lord didn't think much of them. Something to consider when we think about a lot of the bigger churches in America and the mega churches. While they stand out for obvious reasons as being successful or paragons of growth, the reality is that the majority of churches in America and worldwide are less than 100 people. So do we say that those churches are not successful? Do we say that they're not alive? Do we say that they're, they're the ones that are dead? Our evaluation systems are so different. I mean, if you want to get down to it, who was the greatest minister to ever walk the earth? Anybody. Who was the greatest minister to ever walk the earth? I'm, uh, not often I interact with the audience. Jesus, yes, indeed. Very good, Rick. Jesus is the greatest minister to ever walk the earth. When the Lord rose from the dead after his crucifixion, he walked the earth for 40 days and ministered to the church. And on Pentecost, when he ascended to heaven, guess what the size of the church was? 120 people. If we were to evaluate the early church on our worldly standards today, we would say, the Lord was doing something wrong. He wasn't he wasn't sensitive to the heartfelt needs of the community. Let's get back to basics. It is the Lord who evaluates the church. It is the Lord who knows. It is the Lord who sees. We could put on a good show for others, but Christ sees through the veneer. He sees to the heart. He says in verse 2, uh, verse 1, I know your works. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now let me just a little background on the church of Sardis. As I give a little background, and we're going in a circuit here in Asia Minor. Beasley Murray says this, Sardis was a city of past glories. Once the capital of the ancient Lydian kingdom. It reached its pinnacle of fame under Croesus in the 6th century BC. It flourished under its Persian conquerors, but then went into an unceasing decline to obscurity. This decline of the once great Sardis was aggravated by a devastating earthquake in 17 AD. It was described by Pliny the Younger earlier in the 2nd century as the greatest disaster in human history. And despite the generous aid granted by the Emperor Tiberius, no city in Asia presented a more deplorable contrast of past splendor and present unresting decline. And the church that existed in that city reflected that very decline. It was a commercial center, Sardis, and 
not known for anything more than being a center where woolen goods were made and people were well-trained in the art of dyeing wool. And this church that existed there was a church that was well-known, it was popular, and it had a great reputation. Notice, though, although it had a great reputation, the sharpest criticism, the most severe remarks that Christ makes of any of the seven churches are directed at the church of Sardis. Now think about this. There is no mention of false teachers, right? When you look back at the other false teachers, the Lord says, you know, I have this against you. You tolerate the Nicolaitans, the Balaamites, the Je- Jezebel. There, there's no indication here that there's an issue with false teachers here. There's also no indication of any persecution or suffering or any charge of blatant, obvious sin. And so unlike all these other churches, there's nothing that stands out that's really bad. In fact, they have a reputation of being alive. This is a church that's growing. It's it's large. It's influential. It probably has no shortage of money, no shortage of talent. In every perceivable aspect, it was successful. But just unlike all the other churches where the Lord has nothing to say specifically that was wrong, unlike the other churches, Christ had absolutely not one good thing to say about the church of Sardis. Because even though those other churches had their issues, he said, I commend you for this. You're faithful. You persevere under trial. You're, you're, you hate the works of the Nicolaian. It's like, I hate. In other words, although those churches had problems, he had something good to say about them. There was some redeemable quality. There is absolutely not one good thing Jesus says about the church of Sardis. Not one. Think about that. One of the commentators that I read made a good point. Here you have a church that existed in a region of the empire where all the other churches, all of them, were suffering persecution. Christians were were being arrested. Christians were being blacklisted. Christians were being boycotted. Christians were dying in some cases. But not in Sardis. They're growing. That should be the telltale sign that something is wrong. It should always be a telltale sign that when there is a church that is popular and that is well received by the world and that is the place where, let's say, the Hollywood celebrities want to go because it's cool, immediately that should be a red flag of something is suspect. When the world hates Jesus and Jesus says the world hates him, and yet the world you have a church where the pastor and its congregation are loved by the world, something is wrong. If the church is not suffering persecution, neither Jewish persecution or Roman persecution, it's because they weren't doing anything that Jesus does. Jesus says, if you will follow me, and you're like me, the world's going to hate you. One man put it this way, Content with mediocrity, 
lacking both enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Simply put, Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. And that's like so many churches today. There are so many churches that don't want to do anything to offend anyone. They're, they're afraid to take a strong position on any issue. They're afraid to address heresy. They're afraid to address controversial issues. They're afraid to talk about anything that could offend someone and push them out the door. Because they're worried about their reputation. I think that's what it comes down to. You see, the fact that they had a reputation indicates something. The church didn't exist for the reputation and the glory and the name of Jesus, but existed for the glory and reputation of their own name. Grace and Truth Church doesn't exist for Grace and Truth Church. Grace and Truth Church doesn't exist for Bob and Sarah. Grace and Truth Church exists for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's until we understand that and until churches understand that, they will not, they cannot glorify God. Yes, they may look big. <laughs> they may have a reputation for being lying, but Jesus said it's nothing but a spiritual graveyard. It doesn't matter how great your worship team is. It doesn't matter how gifted and eloquent and funny your preacher is. It doesn't matter how many people you have on staff is the name of Jesus Christ being lifted up. Our evaluation and Christ's evaluation are two different things. Why? Because God and man have two different value systems. Our value system and God's value system are very different. And there's often a clash. The scripture reveals a lot of this clash of these two Value systems. In other words, what usually seems right to man is bad to God, and what's right to God is bad to man, right? There's a way that seems right unto man, the Proverbs say, but it leads what? Unto death. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on what? Your own understanding. Why? Because our value system and God's are very different. Notice what the Lord says in Luke 6 26 Woe to you! When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you when men speak well of you. Is that what you want? You want the praise and adoration of men? Or, or Luke 9, 48. Uh, he who is the least is the greatest, and he who is the greatest is the least. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. It's an inversion of value systems. Well, we look down upon God esteems. What we exalt and esteem, God looks down upon. And that's exactly what the Lord says in Luke 16, 15. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I think the answer to the spiritual death of this church is found in the second half of verse 2. He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I have not found your works complete. That word complete there indicates uh, 
Uh, they're not perfect. They're, they're, they're impure. They're defiled. They're corrupted. And I think that the works are corrupted in that they're not done in faith, but they're done out of selfish endeavor. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so here was a church that was very active. They were doing a lot, I'm sure. They were very busy, I'm sure. But their motives were wrong. They were not doing it for the name of Christ. They were doing it for themselves. Church was nothing more than a business. And I got to tell you, this confronts the modern church growth model. There's conferences that you can go to as a pastor where you can go for a weekend somewhere and someone from Saddleback will train you in the art of church growth. How to make your church bigger and earn more money. I don't need none of that. Because all those models are built on business models. I'm not saying business models are bad. If you're in business, by all means, you need to have a business plan or you will not succeed. Business models and business plans are good, but the church is not a business. Church is a community. It is a community of God's people. It is a kingdom. It is an outpost of the kingdom. And last I checked in the book of Acts, as it reads in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 8, and the Lord added to their number. And the Lord added to their number. And their Lord added to the number. The Lord did not call us to be successful. The Lord called us to be faithful. And when we are faithful, God adds to our number. It's a warning to us. We'll say, oh, we're a little church, you know, and this is not for us. Well, it, it, there is an application because we can be very active. We can be very involved in ministry. We could be uh, singing and preaching and evangelizing. And we're talking about all the different activities that, have, that are done in our church. And you could be very busy in ministry, and yet you could be doing it all for the wrong reason. You could be doing it to enhance your own image, to enhance your own reputation, to, to, to make people think well of you. And if you're doing it for that reason, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You do it for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do it for his glory and his name and his honor. Yes. Think about what, what, who Jesus took the biggest issue with in his public ministry. Did he sit there for three years denouncing the Romans and, and their secular paganistic government? Oh, Rome had plenty of problems. Who did he have the biggest issue with? The religious people. All the conservative Pharisees. These people knew their Bible. Theologically, they were right on target. But spiritually, they were dead. They were dead, dead, dead. Jesus says to them in, in Matthew chapter 6, when he denounces their prayers and their fasting and everything, he says, you hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is? The word hypocrite in Greek literally means an actor, someone who takes to the stage and performs. He's saying to the religious leaders of his day, you're all a bunch of performance artists. Now you know why they crucified him. How many take to the stage of religion and put on a show? 
Christ doesn't care about how good of a show you put on. A lot of people could put on a show. It's what's inside that counts. You see, all this activity, if it's not done through the empowerment and abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, it's dead works. It is only when we abide in Christ, when we're living in Him and living in His Word and trusting in Him, living for His glory and just basking in His presence and enjoying Him, then it'll flow through our lives. And it's not about impressing you or anyone else. It's about impressing the king. <coughs> Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That was the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis was the descendant, the spiritual descendant of the Pharisees. And there are so many churches like that. Outwardly beautiful, inwardly dead. We must examine our own hearts before the Lord. What are our motives? Very easy to point the finger outwardly. Remember, whenever you point one outward, there are four pointing back at you. What does the Lord say of us? What does he think of us? That is the question. That brings us to the warning. Here's what the warning of the Lord is. So in this church that Christ had nothing good to say, he says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard, and keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This, this is actually good news. It means there's hope. There's a few people in the church who still are saved. There is a faithful remnant within the church, and there is hope. But guess what? He says something of them. They're sleeping. You know, often in Bible, in the Bible, sleep and death sort of kind of are synonymous, right? When Jesus goes to uh, Lazarus, when they call him to um, uh, Lazarus' death, he says he's not dead, he's sleeping, right? It talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that those who are dead in the Lord are asleep and will be woken up one day. And, and so the, the, the idea of sleep overlaps sometimes. Well, there's two reasons for that. Number one is that when you're sleeping, it resembles a dying person, right? You, you can't quite tell. You know, if someone dies and you see them, they die in their sleep. Are they awake? Are they alive? And it's not until you check their pulse that you know whether they're living or they're dead. And so here was a church that for the most part was filled with unconverted people. They were mostly dead people in the church. But there were some people who were regenerate, some people in the church who were converted, some people who were born again, but they were asleep. 
And so you couldn't tell the difference between the dead and the living. The only way to tell the difference is to check their pulse. And that's the question. How many people in the church still have a pulse? Whose heart is still beating for Christ? Spiritual slumber is spiritual apathy. We're asleep. We're we're lazy. We're not in the Word. We're not praying. We're not involved in the ministry of the church. We're not involved in the life of the church. We're not in fellowship with the church. We're not actively engaging our mind and, 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 and engaging and, and uh, receiving the means of grace in our life. We're asleep. And notice the, the concept of sleep and the thief of the night comes in. It's the same language the Lord used often in his warnings about the second coming. Behold, I come like a thief in the night. But all those warnings of Christ coming like a thief in the night are, are, are messages of judgment to the unbelieving world. It, it's a reminder <clears throat> that when Christ comes, he'll come suddenly. You don't expect the thief to come in the middle of the night, right? If you wake up in the middle of the night and someone's in your house, it's unexpected, it's frightening, it's scary. You're, you're, you're asleep, you're stumbling out your door. And even if you have a firearm to defend yourself, you're fumbling because you're scared and you, you don't know where you have it and you don't know if it's loaded. And, and that's a thief when he comes in the night. Puts you on edge. And when Christ returns, he's putting the world in check. People are going to fumble. They're going to stumble. They're going to they're flee in fear and terror. But that ought not to be the case with God's people. And so what is Jesus talking about here? He's not talking about the second coming, no. But he's talking about a coming in judgment. And the Lord comes in judgment, in many judgments. He comes in judgments upon nations. And he comes in judgment upon churches. And the threat here is directed at the church of Sardis. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring judgment. And it's going to come in swift and sudden and quick and it'll catch you off your guard and no matter what you try to do it's too late here's the warning turn with me 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 1st <clears throat> Corinthians chapter I mean 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. This is everything I was just telling you. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, all right, Betsy's hearing that and saying, yeah, that's going to be me soon. And they will not escape. Notice verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night. We are none of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. 
This is the message of the Lord. Wake up. Are you a child of God? Are you spiritually asleep? Have you become spiritually apathetic? You're no longer even moved by the things of God. Wake up, man! Before it's too late. Are you a child of God? You're a child of the light, of the darkness. We don't sleep. That's what the world does. We're of the light. We're awake. We're alert. We're sober. Clear-headed to the things of God. You see, Satan does a number on us. If he doesn't get you through persecution, he gets you through seduction. He lulls us to sleep with comfort. One of the problems here in America, and I feel it too, I feel it, I feel it. We are too comfortable. We're like Israel in the days of Amos on our ivory couches. We don't, we don't understand what it is to be a Christian on the run. We don't understand what the church in China is going through. We don't understand what the church in Nigeria is going through. We don't understand what the church in Pakistan is going through. They don't have the comforts we have. But they're alive. We're sleeping. There's a slumber and the Lord says, wake up strengthen what remains. In other words, there's hope. There is hope. It means that within the church that we may be, some of us may be asleep, but there is the potential to get out of this stupor. There is potential to strengthen what remains and is about to die. There are some church. There was one church I saw visited about, I don't know, 10 years ago. I went to visit a church in this region. Big church, beautiful. The, the sanctuary could hold at least maybe three, 4,000 people. Um, beautiful campus. Two, three parsonages. It was absolutely stunning. Uh, the history of the church was that it, it was an old church and, and they experienced great revival and, 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 and an explosion of growth in the, the 60s and 70s. And by the 1980s, the, the church was just bursting at the seams and they had conferences there, Bible conferences. It was, and, and, and it was just, just amazing. And when I visited that church 10 years ago, after about 10 or 15 years of decline, they were down to about 30 members who met in the basement for a Sunday morning service. Strengthen what remains before you die. There are some churches that still have a pulse. They still have a heartbeat. But if they don't strengthen and revive and bring themselves back to health, they will die. And the only thing that's going to inject health into a dying church, into a sleeping church, is the Holy Spirit of God. But when the Holy Spirit is grieved, 
You see, what happens is the Holy Spirit becomes grieved. The Holy Spirit becomes quenched, right? We're told, do not quench the Holy Spirit. How do we quench the Holy Spirit when we become more like the world and less like Jesus? When Sunday morning becomes nothing but a show, a performance, a ritual, a routine, but there's no substance Monday through Saturday. No matter what the church looks like, it's on life support, and it's a matter of time before we flatline. Wake up, Jesus says. Again, the focus comes back to those who are undefiled, those who are not soiled their garments. That's an interesting terminology there, right? You think of soiled garments and you think of something disgusting. This has a relation back to the Old Testament. For the priests, they're even there, before they went into the presence of God, even their garments needed to be cleansed because they were soiled from daily use. And the idea was to be covered. You cannot approach the presence of God without pure coverings. But the promise the Lord gives to those who do not defile themselves and corrupt themselves with the world, he says they will be thus clothed in white garments. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, you cannot come before Jesus. You cannot come into the presence of God unless you have clean wedding garments on. You need to put off the old man and put on the new man. You need to take off the wretched, stinking clothes of death. Remember when Lazarus came out of the grave? When Lazarus came out of the grave, Jesus says, unbind him. It says when he came out of the, gra- out of the grave, he stinketh, as the King James Version said. The stink of death is on our old garments. Shake them off and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And Jesus says, you will conquer. For those who conquer, for those who endure, for those who press forward, for those who wake up out of their stupor and wake up and, and, and when you're in a church that's dead and you wake up, if that church doesn't come back to life, you know what you do? You get out of it. You hang around stinking, dying people, you're going to be stinking and dying. You put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is this, that your name is written in the book of life. Some see here where it says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life, as indicating, hmm, it's possible you can be blotted out of the book of life. No, that's not what it's saying. Those who are elect, those who belong to the divine registry of God's people, can never be blotted out of the book of life, is what it's saying. For those who conquer, for those who persevere, they are the elect, they are the true chosen ones of God, they are the faithful remnant, and you will never, ever lose your salvation. It is eternal reward and promise. And finally, this this last statement, this last promise to us, I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. <laughs> that is so good. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, 
verse 31 Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father is in heaven. Hallelujah. The warning is pretty clear. If you're ashamed of Jesus in this world, he'll be ashamed of you before the Father and the angels of heaven. If you are proud of Jesus, if you faithfully and boldly proclaim Jesus, he will acknowledge you before his Father and the angels of heaven. This church in Sardis didn't experience any persecution. You know why? Because it was a church that wouldn't take a stand for anything. They wouldn't, they wouldn't dare go against the waves of the culture. They wouldn't dare take a stand that would upset the apple cart. They wouldn't dare do anything that would offend the outside world. You know, there's no saying, if you don't stand for something... You'll fall for anything. But ultimately, the church that won't take a stand for truth, that won't take a stand for righteousness, that won't take a stand for Christ, will fall under the rod of Christ's judgment. Let me end this sermon on a note to encourage you, and that is the good news of Christ and his salvation. If you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if you are not born again, if you have not experienced new life, you're sitting here listening to someone saying, well, gee, I wonder if I'm one of those dead people. Or maybe you're sitting here saying, I'm someone with a pulse, but I don't, I don't really feel life in me. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news is this, is that Jesus Christ came to rescue and save dead sinners and to make them alive. He did this by dying in our place, the death that we deserve, because every human being has sinned against God, has made a mockery of God, has offended God, has committed a crime against God, a capital crime worthy of death. And Jesus Christ has borne our sins. He satisfied the death penalty that we, you and I deserve. And he also rose from the dead to give us new life, eternal life, abundant life, spiritual life to wake us up from that dead nothing is going to wake up the dead like the good news of Jesus Christ faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of Christ and it is this word the gospel that breathes life into the dead sinner and converts and regenerates and when you wake up, you say, hallelujah, Christ is alive in me. Without the gospel, without faith in Christ, no one can live. And if you have not truly come 
to faith in him. Do so today. Well, Bob, I'll put it off. I, I'm busy. I got to go home today and I got a lot to do. And I'm... My brothers and sisters, my friends, when judgment day comes, there'll be no delay. Today is the day of salvation. Mark it well. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. May it never be said of grace and truth that we are a dead church. Lord, strengthen what remains in us. For those who are asleep, help us to wake up. For those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, make them alive in Christ. Oh Lord, may our church be a church that lives and breathes the glory of God, not the glory of self. In Jesus' precious name, amen.